So if you have a Bible, turn to 1 Thessalonians. We are at the end of chapter 2 and in chapter 3 this morning. Uh, a reminder, if it's your first time with us in this series, Paul is writing to a young church that was planted on the same missionary journey that he is still on. So they've traveled through. The Holy Spirit prevented them from preaching in Asia temporarily. They go to Philippi and they plant a church there. And then they go to Thessalonica. And the gospel comes in much power in the Holy Spirit. And they receive the word for what it really is. And Paul recounts that they turned from idols in this pagan culture to serve the living God. And that God, it was just so clearly a miraculous work of God's Holy Spirit that they became an example all over Greece of the power of God and what happens when people turn from idols to serve a living God after hearing the gospel. The town grew into an uproar, and Jews and pagans alike came against Paul and his traveling companions, and they had to flee at night and escape persecution, and they traveled on. And it's only been a short time since then, and they have just gotten report back from Timothy. Paul was worried sick about this fledgling church plant, didn't know how they were doing, didn't know where they were, and Timothy's just returned back to Paul and has given them a report, and now Paul's writing a letter to them to rejoice over what he's hearing and to exhort them and encourage them to stand fast in their newfound faith. And so that is where we are picking up this morning in chapter 2, Verse 17, Paul writes, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or our joy or our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. 
Let's pray before we dive in. Father, this is your word, living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to, devere, to divide right to the division of our soul and spirit, discerning the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Lord, we are laid open before your word. Come search us and try us and teach us. Lord, would you produce and answer this prayer in us as a church. May our love abound more and more. In Jesus' name, amen. So the main idea, I'm going to give you a Coryism where uh, Corey Ickes, who pastored this church with us for a long time, said, if you only get one thing away from this message, here it is. Paul's expressions of love and care in the midst of much affliction are demonstrations of a gracious gift from God that God wants to give to all of his people as we prepare for the day of Christ. These expressions of Paul, this effusive love that is all over this text in the midst of much affliction is a demonstration of the kind of love of what God wants to do in us as a people as we wait for the coming of Christ. So first, Paul's expressions of love and pastoral longing. Uh, if you're not an emotive person, not emotionally inclined, this, this may make you feel like you blush when you read it a little bit. This language in this text is effusive. Paul is gushing over the Thessalonian church. And I, I want you to remember as you read this who Paul used to be. We're talking about a persecutor of the church who was trying to stamp out the church in Jerusalem. He was the people that he was running from in Thessalonica, seeking to stamp out the church in its infancy right after the ascension of Christ. But Jesus rescued him, Paul says, the chief of sinners, so that he might be uh, an example of Christ's perfect patience and his power, his mercy, his ability to transform someone by the power of his Holy Spirit. And so I want this to encourage you and challenge you this morning that the same word and the same spirit that transformed Paul are now at work in you. He went from being a persecutor of the church and stoning believers and followers of Jesus to having this kind of love and pastoral longing and care over the church of God. And the difference was the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit at work in his life. Romans 5 says that God pours out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit he has given to all of his people. So God has poured his spirit into your heart as a believer, and the love of God is poured into your heart by the Holy Spirit, the very personification of the love between the Father and the Son alive in you, at work in you. Galatians 5 says that the, the first facet of the fruit of the Spirit of God in our lives that is listed in Galatians 5 is love. This is not a tangential uh, mark of a believer. This is the very fruit of God in you is that you would have his love for one another and for everyone. Jesus keeps bringing our church back to this text in recent weeks uh, over and over again. And I'm praying that we lean in because we don't, 
we don't plan for this. It's not like we had this big scheme, say like, hey, five weeks in a row, let's just camp out on love. Uh, but Ben Preston came and preached, and it was all on this commandment to love one another. And then we get into our men's Bible study, and we're looking at First John, and it's all about loving one another. And then here today, we see Paul and his example in the Thessalonians and their love for one another, and God is speaking to us. And may we have ears to hear. In John 13, verse 34 and 35, the Lord Jesus says to us, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So this is amazing, this commandment. He says, just as, these are important words, very small, vital. Just as I have loved you. That's the kind of love that I want you to have for one another. If I have given it to you, I want you to take what I give to you, and I want you to pour it out on other people. And so what does that look like? Because we all can have our definitions of what this love looks like and feel like we're doing a pretty good job if we're more loving than we were yesterday. But Jesus holds up to us a standard and says, this love looks like the love that I have demonstrated in pouring out my life for you. God demonstrates his love and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And I think right here, Paul, in his example, gives us a portrait of Christ-produced love. This is what it looks like when Christ produces his love in a heart. Because Paul did not have this before he came to Christ, right? He was persecuting the church of God and hated followers of the way, and now this is there. How? Well, this is what God wants to produce in all of his people. This is a normal and supernatural love that God wants to give to all of his people. So look again at this beginning of this text in chapter 2, verse 17. Paul says, Since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. And he goes on and he calls him his joy and his crown and his boasting before the Lord at his coming. This word for torn away means orphaned. And it's not like our modern term that's only applied to children. It could be used interchangeably for parents or children who were bereft of each other. So Paul is saying, I was bereft of you like a parent who's torn away from his children. I was orphaned from you, having to be torn away from you. And he was worried sick about them, worried that the tempter had come away and snatched away the word that had been uh, planted among them. And he says, look, now he's, he's writing to them. He sent Timothy to them, and he wants to make sure that they know that he wasn't just sending a JV minister, somebody who was part of the B team, where like he was too busy and he was tied up, and he just sent Timothy to them, and they were like kind of a secondary afterthought to Paul. And so Paul is making sure that they know, I tried to come to you again and again. I have not stopped thinking about you. I was torn away from you in body, but not in heart. I carry you in my heart all the time. In chapter 2, he talked about loving them with the nurturing love of a mother, like a nursing mother with her children. We were so tender and affectionate towards you. We were gentle among you. And he talks about loving them like a father, charging them and exhorting them and encouraging them to stand firm in the faith. 
So he had both. He had this tender, loving care and this charging of them so that they would stand fast and be strengthened. In chapter 2, verse 8, Paul says, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Why? Because you had become very dear to us. This is astonishing language if you think about who Paul used to be. And he was only among them for about a month. How does somebody become very dear to you in a month where you talk about them like this? This is very strange, especially in our culture. It takes a long time to open up to somebody. But I was thinking about this. It was very evident to Paul that these were Jesus's people. The gospel came in power and wrought life. And it was so evident that God was at work. And so it's as if he is saying, if they're very dear to Jesus, then they're very dear to me. If, if it is very evident that these are Jesus' sheep, then I will love them. And I will love them with all my heart and with all my soul. There is this pastoral longing and laboring over the people of Jesus because they're his sheep. He's, verse 17, this language is, he's using all this emphatic language that's saying the same thing twice all through. I endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you. He's saying exceedingly, earnestly, with great longing. I had a craving to see you. I wanted to see you. I couldn't stand it any longer not to be with you, not to see you. This is the language of a parent over their children. Your children are the only people you feel this way about. And Paul felt it about them because Christ had produced his love in him for them. He calls them his glory and joy and crown at the Lord Jesus' coming. This is astonishing. So in the, the games, like the Greek games that they would have understood very well, you would receive this crown for your, your prize, maybe for winning a race, but also just for achievements. And they would receive these laurels or these crowns. And then they would come and honor the emperor or the leader of the town by coming and laying that crown down at his feet in honor of, of the people presiding over the games. And so Paul is essentially saying, my trophy in ministry is you. The Lord Jesus gave me to you. We labored among you and we got you. What a prize. And when we see Jesus face to face, our hope, our glory, our joy is going to be having this trophy to lay at his feet and saying, you did it. But he is saying this to them as a, a phrase of affection, saying, you are our joy. You're our joy then when we see Jesus face to face and you're our joy now. Because of your faith, because of your faithfulness to Jesus from hearing that you're still following him in the midst of much affliction. What happiness belongs to us? What gladness we'll have both now and then when we see Jesus face to face. And this love that Paul had for them was costly. You see in chapter 3, he says, I couldn't stand it any longer, so we sent Timothy to you. But we know from other places in the word of God that Timothy served with Paul like a child serving his father in that Paul says he was very useful to me. Here he calls him our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel. Uh, 
he, he describes being willing to be left alone in Athens. And later in, in verse 7, he says, it was, they're comforted in the midst of much affliction. So Paul and his traveling companions had their own affliction, their own persecution at the hands of the people that they were ministering to uh, in Athens. And they needed Timothy. Just, I, and anybody who's labored in ministry or has gotten to uh, minister in the context of a team knows how vital those team members are for traveling, for ministering. And so Paul's saying, we were willing to be left alone in the midst of our affliction so that you would not be left alone in the midst of your affliction and we could find out how you were doing. We cared so much about your faith and you being established in your faith that we were willing even to send Timothy 220 miles in an 11-day journey. And then Timothy was probably there for some time. And so it had been probably a month since Paul sent Timothy out and then Timothy comes back to him and the whole time he just is eager to hear, did they make it? Did the tempter come? Did he snatch away the seed? Does this church, does it still exist? Are they still there? And his, all his heart and his joy and his longing are for these people honoring Jesus and growing in the faith. He says that in verse eight, for now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. He's saying, my, I, I live, I have joy. We're, we're always caring about in our body the dying of Jesus. We're always being persecuted for his namesake. We're always in every place experiencing afflictions for Jesus. But it is life to us if we know that you're standing fast in the Lord. It, 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 it helps us to keep going. It is life-giving for us just to know that you are walking with Jesus still. And verse 9 and 10, it kind of crescendos into this, oh, what? And then Timothy told us that you were standing fast and thanksgiving can we give to God? How could we ever repay God for this great joy just to find out that you're walking with him and that you know him and that you're growing in the Lord? Oh, praise God. Praise his name. So there was this Christ-produced love in Paul for them but it was this great thanksgiving to God knowing this was the work of God. It wasn't because of Paul and his companions' great working. It was because God produced this work in them and God kept them in the midst of the work. And it resulted in great thanksgiving among Paul and his friends. And I just want to say, before we move on, that this paints a bit of a picture for us today and for you of how your pastors feel toward you and how we're to feel and be toward one another. This is, uh, Paul says, we live if you're standing firm. That's how we feel. We feel like we can go on and we can keep shepherding and we can keep laboring if you're standing firm in the Lord and if you're not standing firm in the Lord, it keeps us up at night. You guys are the content of our most earnest pleas before God. You're the last thought, I, I don't know about you guys, when I'm going to bed at night and my head hits the pillow, I'm praying for the church. People say, what keeps you up at night? People in the church, where it, I don't know if they're standing firm in the Lord. I don't know if they're going on. And... This is why God gave us to you. Ephesians 4 says that God gave to the church. 
pastors. He gave us to you so that we could supply what is lacking in your faith, so that we could help build you up on your most holy faith and equip you for the work of ministry that God has for you, so that as the church has individual members that are working properly, the whole church grows up together in love into the fullness of him who is our head, Christ Jesus. But this is why God gave us to you, to help you grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus and to model for you pouring out your life and your love for the sake of Christ, for the sake of his people, for the sake of his gospel, so that we can look at you and say, follow us as we follow Jesus. Do you see how I laid down my life for you? Go and lay down your life for each other. Do you see how we lay down our lives for the sake of the gospel? Christ is worth it. He's worthy. Go and lay down your life like we do for you. And this is, you can see that this is not just a one-way street. This is not just Paul having this pastoral love. He says in verse 6, Timothy reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. So this is the kind of family love that is supposed to characterize the body of Christ as we labor over one another and as we labor alongside of each other, that we would have this kind of genuine affection for each other that is Christ-produced. You cannot produce, this is the one first thing that some of you may have agreed with, you cannot produce this kind of love in yourself. This is a gracious gift of God. That's why our passage is going to end with Paul saying, may God do this in you more and more. It is a gift. And Paul modeled this for us in the midst of much affliction. He and the Thessalonians both, point two, are in the midst of much affliction. Look at the beginning of chapter three. It says, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, which was a very bad proof text for the University of Georgia when I was there, just to let you know. Athens, Georgia. We, all, we always use that as a, a reason to stick behind for a fifth year. Um, so he says, we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel to establish and exhort you in the faith. Why? So that no one would be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So this is what Paul says. Don't be moved by these afflictions. Afflictions happen. This is because of suffering in the world. Sin has broken the world and suffering and trials happen. Jesus promised them. He said, in the world, you will have trials, but I have overcome the world. This is our hope. Our hope is not in not experiencing suffering, not experiencing affliction, but in the fact that Jesus, the resurrected and risen King, is going to turn every suffering into a glory for his people. He will make everything, all the suffering of your life, actually work for you a glory that can't be compared to the suffering that you've experienced here. He is wanting to use it to produce Christ-likeness and maturity in you. So you don't have to do a raise of hands, show of hands, but if we were to say, who in here feels like you're going through a hard time or that you're suffering in some way? 
I said, don't show hands, Jesse. Dang. <laughs> you're having a really hard time if you're like, I don't care if you said don't raise my hands. I'm going up, right? God is wanting to use those things to produce in you Christ-likeness, to produce for you a glory. And Paul had a theology of suffering. I, I Don't forget, he was with them for like three or four weeks. And he had a theology of suffering that was so important that he had already imparted to them this understanding of the role of suffering in the Christian life and the expectation that you will encounter suffering for the sake of Christ. Paul knew that when you proclaim Christ and his authority into a world that hates God and hates Jesus and you proclaim to them, you have sinned against the holy God, you have need of turning from your sin and placing your trust in Christ alone who is able to pardon you for your sin, from your sin. But you need to turn from yourself and place your trust in him. Otherwise, you will perish. You proclaim that message. You proclaim the righteousness of God into a world that hates the righteousness of God and wants to live however they want. And you will experience hardship and suffering and persecution. Not to mention the normal trials of life that are resultant just from sin breaking the world. So Paul writes to Timothy towards the end of his life in 2 Timothy 3.12. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We've talked about this much as a church. I can give you a recap of four quick things. This This is normal. Suffering is normative in the Christian life. Peter writes in his letter that God ordains necessary suffering to test and to purify our faith. So is just a necessary God being the goldsmith, turning up the heat in your life to purge from your life the things that are not honoring to God? It's, it's a testing, it's a purifying of your faith. Last week, David showed us how suffering for the sake of Christ actually embodies the gospel. As God's people go the way of the cross and suffer for Jesus' namesake so that other people can find life in him. So Suffering can actually image the gospel to a lost world that's looking on, seeing you choosing to go away that is hard, that's resulting in persecution because Christ is worthy, because that's what he did for us. Suffering experienced with faith and eyes on Jesus drives God's people to dependence on him, even as God uses suffering to sanctify his people. The psalmist says it like this, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your law. Before I was afflicted, I was independent. I was going my own way. But now that I'm going through this hard time, now that this affliction has happened, now I'm back seeking God. Now I'm back with the people of God. We all have seen this in our experience. How God uses even the pains of our life to draw us closer to him and cause us to depend on him. And God uses suffering in his people to purify us and to produce his son in us, preparing us for the glory that is coming. Indeed, producing for us glory that is coming. It's not separate. That God is actually using the suffering of your life to bring about great reward when you see Jesus face to face. And so, um, but the devil, and this is Paul's writing to them, the devil does not miss out on an opportunity to use suffering to turn God's people's hearts away from God. And we've all experienced this. 
you go through a God-ordained, God-allowed suffering, and the enemy steps in and causes you to doubt God's goodness or God's sovereignty. So you, you go into the suffering, you go into the trial, believing that God is good, believing that God is in control, and as you experience the trial, you start looking at the waves around you, you take your eyes off of Jesus, and you start to sink a little bit. He, he, he breaks in, and he's trying to, as Jesus told with the parable of the sowers, he's trying to snatch up the seed. He's trying to bring in persecution so that that seed doesn't have time to get root and so that you fall away. This was Paul's fear that the tempter had come and pulled up the seed of God's word that was sown among them. But listen to James, the brother of Jesus, write about this very thing in James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That may sound like a, a random cross-reference to you, but the language in James 1 for trials and temptation is the same. We translate it differently so that people aren't confused by, wait a second, I thought they said God couldn't tempt people, but God does bring about these necessary trials in our lives so that we would consider them joy and so that Christ would be produced in us. So which is it? And the, the reality is that God ordains these hard things in our lives, these trials, and the enemy seizes upon those and turns them into temptations. He tempts you to respond poorly in the midst of the trial. And so James is writing and saying, don't say that you're being tempted by God. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast in the midst of the trial, who doesn't allow the enemy to come against you and, and lure you away. You've got some trial, some temptation in your life, some great hardship. The bottom fell out. And the enemy comes along, and all of a sudden, the things that weren't working before all of a sudden look shiny, and he's just fishing and just pulling you along. And it says that, uh, that each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. And desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This was Paul's fear, is that the enemy was using all of his schemes to lure away the Thessalonians from this steadfast faith that they had, and that in the midst of these persecutions from the Jews and from the pagans around them, that they were going to be susceptible to the enemy's temptation and be lured away. When Paul writes to them and says that he wanted to see them, to strengthen them, but Satan hindered them again and again. So Paul tried again and again, and Satan hindered them again and again. That word for hindered is a military term. It was the stopping the advance of the enemy armies. Uh, soldiers would tear up and destroy the road to hinder their passage. So I don't want you to miss this. It's a warlike term because Satan is at war against Christ and his people. He will do whatever he can to fight against the Lord Jesus and against you 
living out an obedient faith to him. He'll do whatever he can to stop you from a genuine fellowship with the church, to get you isolated and alone. So note that Paul was saying, I wanted to see you face to face to shore up your faith. It was, it, was a, it was a shoring up of their faith that couldn't just be done by letter. He wanted to be with them. It was a personal love that wanted to be together and to foster growth among each other and a fellowship among each other. And Satan hindered him with warlike attacks to keep Paul from shoring up their faith in person. And I just think about this past year and even now. So the temptation for the last year and a half is for God's people to not be together and then us to get used to it and just grow okay with it. But then the other temptation is to be together in person but not in heart. To have a unity that is wrecked by a lot of secondary things, even some primary things, and instead of working through it and loving one another, uh, division reigns and runs rampant through the church. Not necessarily in this church, but this is the enemy's strategy and has been. He aims at hindering God's people from being together and from loving each other. And so I don't want you to miss how important it is for the establishing of your faith so that you're not rocked to and fro by every trial that comes up so that you're not susceptible to the enemy when he attacks, the importance of being together for the cultivating of a Christ-like love and loving one another so that Paul's battle was, I just want to be with you. I carry you in my heart, but I can't be with you. And our battle today, the way that Satan would hinder us is for us to think, well, we're together but I don't really love the body. Like I come to the gathering because it's for me and I come and I get fed and I come kind of late and I leave kind of early and it's just about me and my faith and my family and our walk with God and things are busy and things are crazy and it just, I do love the people, but I just, you know, things are busy. Well, then busyness is the way that Satan is hindering you from the love of the body. So Paul rejoiced to hear from Timothy that they were in truth remaining steadfast under trial and he wanted to establish them more and more. So, lastly, preparing for the day of Christ, love abounding to holiness. Remember the main idea, Paul's expression of love and care to the Thessalonians in the midst of much affliction were demonstrations of what God wants to give to all of us as we prepare for Christ's coming. So listen to verse 11 through 13. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And so I just want to drive home here that this kind of love that Paul is exhibiting to the Thessalonian church is both normal and supernatural. It is normal because it is God's design that when Christ pours out his love into your heart through faith by the Holy Spirit, this is what he's seeking to produce in you. This kind of genuine others orientation that lays itself down and is desirous of other people growing in Jesus, desiring of their good, where they're all your thought 
where you can't stop thinking about other believers and helping them grow in Jesus, that this is his heart towards you. You care about their need. You care about their prayer requests. You care about them. It's normal, but it is also supernatural because it can only come through this kind of praying that Paul is doing right now, the prayer that we're unpacking. May God do this because you cannot produce it in yourself. This is, I don't, don't miss the connection between love and holiness. This kind of love comprises a true holiness. Holiness means Christ-likeness. It's the same thing. It's, it means an otherness, that God is holy in a way that is completely other and separate from all of his creation. No one and nothing is like him. He is holy and to be feared. But one of the ways that God is holy is that his love is unlike any other love. It is pure and without mixed motive. It is strong and it is sacrificial and it is true and it's not compromised by people's feelings or by people's perception of what love is. His love is true and strong and abounding and he's able to give it to us. So the nature of holiness is Christ in us, that we cannot produce this kind of holy just by looking at Jesus' life or reading about his life and seeking to imitate his example. This kind of love comes as we walk with God and we yield to the life of Christ in us. And in a daily walking with him, he imparts his love to us. Not mere imitation, but him imparting his very life to us and giving us his love for his own people. In Philippians 1, uh, 9 through 11, this is the closest prayer to this that I could see in the Bible. And Paul writes these letters, similar geographic locations, similar timing. In first, uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 9 through 11, Paul writes, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Sound familiar? With knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So in both of these instances, what Paul is praying for is that Christ would dwell in our hearts by faith and that we would yield to him, that his spirit is the Holy Spirit. So he wants a holiness to mark God's people. This is, this is what... He's after, but he's praying that the way to get there, the way to holiness and a righteousness is through a purifying of your heart for a sincere love of your brothers and sisters. That love and holiness are not disconnected ideas. So often in the Christian life or in Christendom in general, you just hear about like people that emphasize holiness and people that emphasize love. People that emphasize loving God with your mind and people that emphasize loving God with your heart. But a true love is not disconnected from being righteous before God. Righteousness and love go hand in hand. That's why in our text, he says, may the Lord make you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all. Why? So that by your love increasing and abounding, he would establish your hearts blameless in holiness before God. They are connected ideas. In Philippians, he says the same thing. May your love abound more and more. Why? So that you can approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. 
So in both of these cases, the coming of Christ is in view. And we as believers are called to live our lives in the fear of God, mindful that our master is at the door. He is coming. And his reward is with him to render to everyone according to what they have done. And he commands us, pursue holiness in the fear of God. This is what believers do. We pursue holy, other Christ-likeness in the fear of God, knowing that he is coming. And we want to honor him with our lives. And the way that we go about pursuing holiness is knowing him and receiving his love from him. And just as he loves us, loving one another. This is the fulfillment of the whole law. That you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. You want to be holy? You want to fulfill the whole law in holiness and in righteousness? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And don't leave off the second commandment. Love one another. Just as Christ has loved you. And you will be established in holiness, blameless, for the coming of our Lord Jesus. That's what Paul is praying for. And it is so important because today the entire world views love as you loving me according to my truth. But there is not our truth. Truth doesn't have pronouns. Truth is truth. That's why Paul says, may your love abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. I want truth to be the guardrails of your life and you only your, your love rages inside the boundaries. And it doesn't bleed over because someone didn't feel loved when you told them God is righteous, God is holy, the king is coming to judge the world in righteousness, and unless you repent, you will likewise perish. That is love inside the guardrails of truth. But this real love is so unnatural to us Real love looks like laying yourself down, laying down your desires, laying down your selfish orientation so that other people can have life. It looks like laying down our cowardice so that other people can have the gospel. And it looks like laying down what I want so that I can defer to other people and give the best things away. You don't know how like my heart swells with joy when I see my eight-year-old son holding back and saying, I'm going to go last because I want other people to make sure they get the best part of the dessert. It's that simple. It's, it's denying yourself so that other people can have life. Life not being just the apple dumplings, but in everything. This kind of love is the fruit of Christ and his righteousness on your insides. And so we put, I was just telling Kayla, like, I don't know why the Lord just occasionally will refresh this. You cannot be a Christian without the Bible. You just can't do it. If you're trying to be a Christian without the Bible, you're frustrated because it's just not working. Because this is like oxygen. And you can say, well, I don't want to be legalistic about it. But being legalistic about the Bible is like being legalistic about an oxygen tank when you're scuba diving. It's just like you probably should be. It's important. And you're not going to be able to breathe without it. And so we need to be a Bible people, but not just the people who are like skipping across the surface because we're checking off a box so that 
we feel better about our days, but a people who abide here and see Jesus here and his word dwells richly in us and our roots are going down deep into the love of God and into Christ Jesus himself and his life is coming up through the roots and bearing fruit. And the first on the list of the fruit of the Spirit is love. And so you cannot disconnect our power source to the Holy Spirit using the Word of God to sanctify us in His truth, to purify us so that we would be a holy people and a, ho- a people whose holiness is defined and marked by love of God for other people. Not just love as we define it, but love. Not love as you've grown accustomed to it, where like you're a way more loving person than you used to be, and so you're content. But a love that is not content to still have self all through. A love that seeks to lay itself down so that other people can find life in Christ. All of this in the context of the coming of the Lord Jesus. Now the Thessalonians uh, feared that they may have missed the coming of the Lord, as we will see. And so Paul's writing to them, don't be deceived. Jesus is coming. Let it be all your hope. He is coming, but he hasn't come yet. And these are some signs that you're going to see. But his chief prayer for them as he's exhorting them to be established and to be rooted and grounded and standing firm, living in light of his coming, is that their love would abound more and more. May the Lord make your love to abound and to increase for each other and for all. This is why we have church membership, by the way, so that you would have a place to know who are, when it says, let your love abound more and more for one another and for everyone, who's the one another? Well, it's the church. How do I know who's the church? Well, these are people who have turned from their sin and placed their trust in Jesus, and we want to follow Jesus together. And the Bible has all these one another's that we are to live out together. Well, how do I know what those one another's are? And how do I know if who my brother and sister are in this local church? How do the Thessalonians know who was in their local church or the Colossians or the Philippians? How do I know? So we said, well, man, a really just applicable, functional way of living this out together is let's make a list of all these one another's and then let's commit to each other that we're going to do it, that we're going to be there for each other that the pastors could know who are all of our crown and our hope and our joy that we lay down our lives for. And the flock could say, man, Lord, would you make me to abound more and more for my Rivertown church family and for everyone? I've got more, but I'm just going to invite Jordan and Elijah to come back up because I need to stop. There is the possibility that you would shrink back in shame at the coming of Jesus. And this prayer from Paul stands in stark contrast to a life that would be ashamed when Jesus shows up and you weren't ready. And so John writes to uh, the recipients of 1 John saying, little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. 
and the fruit of abiding in him, how you will know that you actually abide in him is if you have love for one another. His life in you. Your love increasing and abounding for one another and for everyone so that you are blameless and holy. You're presented before Christ face to face and you don't need to be ashamed because you are walking with Jesus and living in an abiding obedience with him, loving him and loving one another. And so this is my prayer for us as a church. May our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus make you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And Father, we cry amen and amen. Lord, we want to abound in love. That's why I was so discouraged this morning. I just see the chasm between my love and your love, and I want you to change me. So would you start with me? Start with the pastors. Would you cause our love to increase and abound more and more for this flock and for everyone? And would you do the same in our church, that this love would abound and we would be steadfast in our faith? Lord, I pray for those who are being attacked by the tempter in the midst of much trial and affliction. Lord, would you hold them up and strengthen them and establish them in your love? May they go back to your word and see Christ resurrected and reigning over your people. You are good and you are in control and we trust you. Lord, would you help us to hold fast to you as we wait for your return? May we be about our Father's business. May we not be too busy, hindered by the enemy for a true love of you and a true love of our neighbor. We love you in Jesus' name, amen.